You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, we're going to get started. So let's pray together. God, we just praise you and thank you for the time that we have once again to gather together with other believers for encouragement, for the purpose of stirring up good works in the lives of each other. God, I pray that would be the case this morning, that we would find encouragement in in fellowshipping together, that we would find encouragement as we study the Word together, and that, God, you would stir up good works in our life as we comprehend Scripture, as the Holy Spirit illuminates that for us. God, that we would take it, apply it to our life, that we would apply it to the context of this church, that we would continue to evaluate our church in light of what you were doing at the church at Thessalonica. God, that we would seek to be a a church that brings glory and honor to you in all that we do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We have um, been slowly working our way through chapter 1. We are going to introduce the remaining verses in chapter 1. Kind of look at those as an overview today. And then maybe go back over the next couple of weeks and spend a little bit more time in depth in each one of those verses. But we are going to um, look at the remaining verses in chapter 1 today. But we'll start reading in verse 1 once again just to set the context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We've spent a lot of time looking at the establishment of this church plant by Paul. And we've been looking at it in the context of our own church plant, how we desire to do things here in Sonoy. We said that initially Paul went to Thessalonica based on a dream that he had from God, where God instructed him to go to this specific area to share the gospel. We said that initially Paul had every intention to go somewhere else to spread the gospel in Asia, gets a vision from God and a dream that says you've got to go to Macedonia. There are people who need the gospel there. We saw that he went to Philippi first. Established a church plant there with Philippi, was run out of Philippi due to persecution. He then ends up here in Thessalonica, where we said that he spent at least three different Saturdays teaching in the local synagogue, presenting a message of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus over and over to these people. We said that there was an initial response and some conversion by some of the people there. 
that he may have stayed even six months to, to continue discipleship, to continue the establishment of the church. He then moved on to Berea because of persecution in Thessalonica. And he's now writing back to this church that he spent very little time with. And he's so impressed, not with their efforts, but with what God has done through them. He's praising God and thanking God here at the very beginning. He's praising God and thanking God for the work that he's done in the life of this church. He says, I I give thanks to God always for you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He goes on to say that he's thankful for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. He's thankful for their sanctification. They're becoming more and more like Jesus. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in full conviction. He says, I know you guys got saved when I presented the gospel to you. Because you you responded with full conviction. The Holy Spirit got a hold of you. You recognized your sin and you turned from it. The Holy Spirit worked in your life. And then he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so we've started this discussion about discipleship. We've said that we want sovereign hope to be known for discipleship. That sovereign hope is to be known for taking younger men and women and, and pairing them up with older men and women for the purpose of them growing up in Christ. That we want to stop, we want to stop the notion that someone comes into a church, joins the church, they're saved, and they're just told to, to figure it out on their own. That we want to be extremely intentional here. That, that everyone has the opportunity to grow up in their faith. Not just because of pastors investing into them, but because men and women in this church are investing in them. And Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So we started this discussion talking about a three-step process of discipleship. And I gave you step one several weeks back. Number one, being a person worth following. Number one, be a person worth following. Now let's see how, how much you remember from the list of seven things that we said should be true of someone if they're going to be worth following. Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And so here at Sovereign Hope, we want to be the type of men and women that prove to be something worth following. And we've identified seven areas that we want to all be growing in more and more each day. The first one is what? Knows the gospel. That if if a person is going to be worth following, they need to understand the gospel. That Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for salvation. That he died in place of us for our sins. That he accomplished perfection for us so that all the good works needed for salvation have been done by Jesus. Number two, a theology or a theological understanding of Jesus. A theological understanding of Jesus. That you know who Jesus is. The reason that's so important is because our understanding of who Jesus is separates us from every other religion that's out there. He's not a prophet. He's not a teacher. He's not a good man. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's God in flesh. Next, believes in sovereignty. Believes in sovereignty. That there's a, there's a grasp of the fact that God is working everything for, for His glory and for the good of His children. So that everything that happens in your life once you're a believer, you can trust in the fact that God is doing it for your good. That he is working even bad things that happen in your life 
for your good. That is so crucial and important for a disciple and for someone who is going to disciple others. That that concept is grasped and passed on. That God is completely in control of our life. Next, there's a submission to King Jesus. That we've submitted our lives to being obedient to a king whose laws are very good for our life. Next, that we're equipped to learn. That we're equipped to learn that, that we know how to study God's word on our own. That we know how to feed ourselves. So that we can teach others how to feed themselves as well. A love for the church. A love for the church. That God has, has, has sent Christ to die for the church. For the local church that helps make up the universal church. We have a responsibility to be plugged in, attached to a local church of believers so that we can grow up in our faith. And then lastly, a passion for the lost. A passion for the lost. That we have a desire to see people become a part of Sovereign Hope, become a part of other local churches. Because they, for the very first time, respond to Christ. They're not rededicated believers. They're not believers who transfer from one church to another They are genuine new converts, first time coming to Christ and desiring to follow Christ. And in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at number two, get other people to follow you. Be a person worth following, get other people to follow you. Two weeks ago, we looked at the the concept that Paul talks about here when he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We said that... You have a responsibility as a believer to get other young believers to follow you. That you have to set a good example so that you can disciple younger believers to follow you. So that in following you, they follow Christ. We said there's responsibility on you as the discipler to make good decisions. Recognizing that you're setting a good example for people that are going to follow you. We said you can kind of summarize that by saying be attractive. Be attractive. Be the type of person that other people want to be like. As you continue to mature, be the type of person that a younger believer would want to be like. We said there's also responsibility on the disciple to follow the example of older men and women in the church. That if you're a younger believer, you have the responsibility to to follow the example of someone who's older in this church. That you have a responsibility to be obedient. Some of us need to be attractive. Some of us need to be obedient so that we can become attractive to other young believers. And we said lastly, there's an urgency to this, because Paul says in the end of verse 6, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We said that this is so crucial, that young believers in our church grow up in their faith, because difficult times are coming. Trials and, and temptations and difficulties are coming, that want to, want to quench the desire to follow Jesus. And so we have a desire to grow each other up in our faith so that we can respond the right way to these trials and difficulties. And then we come to step number three today. Step number three in the process of discipleship. Be a person worth following. Get other people to follow you. And then thirdly, teach them to lead others. Teach them to lead others. So we're calling today cultivating salvation in others. Cultivating salvation. What, is, what does the word cultivating mean? What does, that, what does that make you think of? 
What's that? Intentional. Okay, intentional, absolutely. Planting. Planting, okay. What else? Maturing. Deepening. And when we talk about cultivating, all those words come into that. And, and, and what's really at the root of that is there's, there's preparation for growth to be able to happen, basically. If you were to cultivate the ground to plant something, you're, you're preparing the ground to be ripe so that something can grow there. We don't actually make something grow. We just make the environment good so that growth can happen. And that's what we do in discipleship. I can't force Jesse, if I'm discipling Jesse, I can't force Jesse to grow. I can't force Jesse to want to be like Jesus. But what I can do is I can cultivate an environment in our relationship, an environment in this church, I can cultivate an environment where Jesse will grow if he responds to the Holy Spirit. A lot of us have come from environments and churches where where there was no cultivation, that we didn't really know how to seek out growth, that there wasn't anybody being intentional with us, that we were saved, we were checked off the list as being a Christian, and we were just kind of left to fend for ourselves. But we want to teach other people how to teach other people. That's the model that we're trying to incorporate here at Sovereign Hope. Is that I want to disciple Jesse, not just to disciple Jesse, but so that Jesse can turn around and disciple someone else. That he can teach someone else. So we cultivate salvation. Paul says in verse 7, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. You see what's happened here. The Thessalonians have gone from being the type of people who follow Paul's example, who imitate Paul's example, they are now the type of people who other people are imitating them. They've gone from being the imitators to the imitatees. There are now people that are imitating them. They have, they have grown up in their faith with Paul and the work that he left with them. And I think it's implied there that there's other leadership that's been in place in that church that's helped grow these young believers up to the point now... That other young believers in other churches are imitating the example set by this church at Thessalonica. He says, you have now become people worth imitating. You have become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The word example here in the Greek, it means an exact reproduction, a type, or a model Basically, Paul is saying to the Thessalonian believers, they have become like blueprints or like cookie cutters. They are the the model that if someone will plug themselves into a relationship with these believers, they will become what they need to become. That's an unbelievable um, um, encouragement to this, this church. It's an unbelievable encouragement for them, for Paul to look at these guys, Paul the apostle, the church planter, to look at these guys and say, you guys are basically exactly what believers need to be like. He says you've become worth following. You've become the type of example that people need to follow. You're like a blueprint. That if a young believer says, what do I need to do to follow Christ? Look at the Thessalonian church. You're like a cookie cutter. We can put new believers with you guys, and they become what they need to become if they follow your example. It's an unbelievable commendation to this church. 
What, what a great, grand recommendation that Paul's giving to this church at Thessalonica. And I think what's, what's really cool to see and really important to see is that they had become examples not just for lost people, but for saved people. This is even a greater commendation for this church. Because I think all of us can, all of us can look at it and say, well, if I'm a believer, then, then you know, in a sense, an unbeliever, an unbeliever should follow my example because I've at least submitted myself to Christ. So I think all of us feels comfortable in saying, yeah, a lost person should follow my example because at least I'm a Christian. There's a lot of us that, would, that are still hesitant to say that a Christian should follow our example. Most of us are going to say, no, I'm still too young in my faith. I'm not worth following yet. I'm not, I don't know enough about Scripture. So I'm not somebody that a Christian should follow. Paul says, you become an example, not to the lost world. He says, you become an example to the Christian world. There are Christians that need to do what you guys are doing at Thessalonica. You're that kind of example. This is the only church that Paul refers to this way. This is the only church that Paul refers to as being this type of an example. It's a testimony to the Holy Spirit and what he was doing in a church that Paul spent such little time with. We said six to eight months, maybe max. And the Holy Spirit, whatever Paul did, he cultivated a, a, an environment for these people to grow, and the Holy Spirit capitalized on it. And that's why Paul is thanking God here. He's saying, I'm praising and thanking God for what you're doing. Because it wasn't me. I wasn't there long enough. And it wasn't them because they're new believers. This, this is, can only be attributed to what God has done here in this church. They've become examples of what other Christians should be. Three things that I want you to see about their example. Number one, their example was the result of following the godly example set by their leaders. Their example was the result of following the godly examples set by their leaders. That's why this morning we took time to stress to you how important it will be to establish elders in this church. It's why we are taking it so serious. Because when we establish elders in this church, they will set the pace and the standard ultimately for what you need to be as Christians. Right? I mean, that's, that's what the elder, the leadership of a church is supposed to be. They're supposed to set the standard for, for what it means to look like to follow Christ. That the elder, if anybody in the church should be able to say this, the elder should be able to say, come and follow me as I follow Jesus. I mean, their responsibility is put on grand stage when they take the position of elder in a church. It's no longer just a man in a church. You're now the, the shepherd of the church as an elder. It's a huge responsibility. And I think it's implied here because we see in all of other Paul's church plants that elders were established. So even though he doesn't tell us that there are elders here, I think the pattern that Paul has set that there has to be elders here. And I think the elders are ultimately carrying on what Paul started. And so these people continue to grow up in their faith by following the example of the elders that were present in this church. And so for here at Sovereign Hope, we desire to put men in position of elder here so that you have an example to follow as a younger believer. So that you can, you can have the pace set for you by older men in this church. Their example was the result of following the godly examples set by their leaders. Number two, their example had spread beyond the local area. Not only were they... Were they Maturing in their faith because they had followed the example of Paul and other leaders in their life. 
Their example had become something that had spread beyond the local area. He says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, the terms Macedonia and Achaia may not hold any relevance to you because we don't live in um, ancient uh, Greece time like, like they're doing. Macedonia is considered the northern province of Greece. Achaia, the southern province. In the northern province of Macedonia, you would have had Thessalonica. You would have had Philippi. You would have had Berea. The three targeted areas by Paul when he first got into the Macedonia area. He went to those three cities. In the southern province of Achaia, you've got places like Athens and Corinth. Now, does anybody remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians? Corinth. So essentially what he's saying is, is that the gap between me and you is filled up with people that know about you and your faith. That's what he's trying to communicate. He says, you're over in Macedonia, I'm in Achaia in Corinth, and everybody in between knows about you guys. Like that's how, that's how unbelievable your faith has become right now. That's the reputation that you guys have for growing in Christ. It's become known all the way over here to where I'm at. There's a great distance between us. Everybody in between seems to know about you guys. Can we think of any churches today that are like that? Any churches that their reputation extends beyond their local area? Any churches that you can think of that would have a similar reputation maybe? Brook Hills. Okay, that's, that's the church that I wrote down. The church at Brook Hills in Birmingham. David Platts, the pastor. Now, his, their reputation has been aided by the fact that we have technology. Right? So, I mean, we've got books that are being published by them. We've got podcasts. We've got websites. So it's a little bit easier for their reputation to get out to us. But Brook Hills is one that comes to mind. Uh, it's a church that has a mission trip basically every week in their church. You know, they don't have a big summer mission trip that their whole church goes on. They have a mission trip every week at their church. And there are people that are filling those trips up every week. There are people that are selling their possessions and giving to the poor. I mean, just an unbelievable reputation known by the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham. That's an example of a church whose reputation extends far beyond their local area. Even a greater testimony to a church that didn't have the benefits of the Internet and the technology that we have, that their reputation was still expanding beyond the local area. The, the impact that their faith was having, to a degree, is even greater than any church that we know of today because it was extending and being known without the aid of technology. God was doing something very special in their life. They were submitting to what the Holy Spirit wanted to do in their life, and it was becoming known all over these different areas. It says... Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Everywhere, so that we need not say anything. This word sounded forth, it, it means like blasting forth. Basically, the gospel had sounded forth or blasted forth like a trumpet. But there had been this... this Powerful movement that had come out from Thessalonica that was having far-reaching effects, both in their word and their deed. Because remember we said that Paul plants in Thessalonica specifically because it's a well-traveled city, right? So there's people coming into Thessalonica, people leaving Thessalonica all the time. 
So what you have here is people coming into Thessalonica who don't live there, who find out about this body of believers, this church, who have been radically changed by the gospel. They're there in Thessalonica maybe a week, and then they leave and go somewhere else, maybe go back home, and they take the story of what they've heard about this church with them as they leave Thessalonica. So this church's reputation is spreading greatly because lost people and saved people are passing through this city regularly and taking this reputation of this church with them. Paul says, I don't, I don't need to even say anything. You guys are blasting forth so greatly. And the implication there is that as Paul continues his missionary journeys, when he gets to some of these places, he doesn't have to tell them about Thessalonica. They already know. Paul says, verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Paul says, I show up at places to tell them about you guys, and they tell me about you guys. Like, your, your reputation has already beat me to some of these places. That, that I'm not bringing news to them about you. They're telling me what's going on with you. He says, you're making my job easier. I'm going to places that don't have the gospel yet, and I'm being received quicker because your reputation has gotten here. So these guys are anxious to hear from me because they already know what kind of reception you guys gave us. He says, your, your, your message, your, your life, your change has blasted forth from Thessalonica. Would to God that, that the work that happens here in this church would blast forth into these areas so that when we desire to plant churches in Noonan and Peachtree City and Griffin, when we desire to expand our church to these other areas, that when we get there, they've already heard about what Sovereign Hope has been doing in Sonoy. That they've already heard about it so that when we plant a church in Noonan, it happens a lot faster because the reputation of this church has already gone far beyond the borders of Sonoy. That's what was happening for Paul. He says, your reputation has already gotten here. The people have already heard of how you responded. And it's making my job easier. Number three. Not only had their example spread beyond the local area. Their example was that of a genuine disciple. Their example was that of a genuine disciple. It says in verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a lot of people who believe that this phrasing here is not a normal phrase that Paul would use. So there's a lot of people that think that Paul is actually writing down verbatim the message that's kind of circulating about this people. This is, this is somebody else's wording. This is the reputation that really is being passed around. This isn't Paul's interpretation of what's happened about them. This is the message, the reputation that people are sharing about this church at Thessalonica. That they've turned from idols. That they're serving a living God now. That they're waiting for Jesus' his son to come back. This is the message that's going around about this church. It's, a, it's an example that they've set that's an example of a genuine disciple. Look carefully with me at the message being spread. It says, They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see in your notes there, number one, turning. There was a break from idols. Number one, turning. There was a break from idols. Now, we'll leave that second blank there empty for right now. But number one, there's a turning. There's a break from their idols. Number two, there's a serving. There's service to God. And number three, there's a waiting. Waiting for the return. We'll leave those last three blanks empty for right now. Turning. He says you, you've, you've turned from idols. You've broken free from your idolatry to serve the living and true God. There's, there's a turning and a serving now that's happened in this life of this church. They've turned from an old way of life of serving idols. They're now serving the living, true God. And then lastly, they are waiting for Jesus to come back. Three important characteristics of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. We've turned from sin. We're serving God and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Three important characteristics of what it means to be a disciple. Turning. This idea of turning, it was an act of repentance, a change of allegiance. We see this in, in other passages in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, verse 35, it says, This is Peter, and he's working, and it says, that Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. A turning to the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 26, Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. This is God talking to Paul to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In me. So we see this aspect of turning from idolatry, turning from a life of sin, turning from darkness, turning to light, turning to service to a living God, turning to a life of righteousness. It's faithful to what we see in the other passages of Scripture. I think it's important that we recognize this would not have been easy for this church. It just wouldn't have been easy. Thessalonica was located about 50 miles from Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was, was thought to be the home of their gods. And it's possible that they could see this mountain from their city. And so here's a, here's a man who comes in preaching a new gospel, preaching a new message of faith, preaching a new religion, basically. And it's contrary to everything they've grown up with. It's contrary to their religion. It's contrary to what they're used to. It's contrary to how they've worshipped in the past. And they can visibly see the home of their God. The gods that they've been worshipping. It also wouldn't have been easy because they've seen the level of persecution that's happened. A level of persecution that's happened in the sense that Paul's been run out of town. So they know that responding to this living God results in a life of difficulty. 
It's not going to be well received. So this turning from idolatry was a huge decision that would not have been easy for this people. And it got me to thinking about what idolatry even is. Because I think that for all of us, there was a point in time, if we're truly saved, that we also had to turn from some form of idolatry. And I don't know that anybody in here, their past involved worshiping a, a false god in the sense of what we think about maybe in the Old Testament times, where we're bowing down to an idol, where we're bowing down to some type of object. But the fact is, is that all of us have had to turn from idolatry to come to Christ. I wrote in my notes that idolatry is, is anything that I'm tempted to live for other than God. It's the good thing that I turn into an ultimate thing. Any, any good thing that I turn into an ultimate thing, anything that I live for that's not God would be considered idolatry. So these people turned from idolatry. They were worshiping actual false gods. But we may not have ever done that. But there's been some type of idolatry that we've had to turn to to God. There was something that you were living for before you came to Christ. That when you truly came to Christ, you stopped living for this and you started living for God. And I think it's helpful for us to even think back through this. I think it's important for us to think through what are we tempted to serve today instead of God. Most of us probably don't even think about idolatry very regularly. <laughs> idolatry is something that happens overseas. It's something that happens in cultures that aren't as advanced as us. They're, and they're still bowing down to physical objects. We fail to realize that we can be just as guilty of idolatry today. Anytime we live for something that's not the living true God. Been teaching my sixth graders at Trinity... Through the Old Testament, we've been looking at um, Israel and their struggle with idolatry in the Old Testament. There's a really interesting story in Second Chronicles. If you want to turn there real quick, Second Chronicles chapter 25. The biggest struggle that Israel had when they went into the Promised Land. The biggest struggle they had living in the promised land was the temptation to worship the gods of the people of the promised land. That they didn't do what God told them. God says, you go in and you get rid of everybody so that you don't get tempted with their gods. If you just get rid of everybody, then there's no gods for you to be tempted by. But they don't follow through with what God told them to do. They allow certain people to still live and still worship their false gods. And Israel begins to fall into the temptation of worshiping these false gods. And you see this pattern over and over. But in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 14. After Amaziah came from, the stri from striking down the Edomites. Anybody know who the Edomites descend from? Esau. Esau. So you've got... Um, Isaac, two sons, Jacob, Esau, Jacob, Israelites, Esau, Edomites. Way down here, Amaziah is leading Israelites against Esau's descendants, Edomites. It says, after Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir, which is another term for the Edomites, 
And he set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. Now, what's unusual about that? Anybody see any irony in what he just did? Yeah, obviously these gods were not good enough to keep Amazia's army out of there. Amazia just defeated these people. And in that time, kings would argue back and forth about whose God was better. I mean, kings would show up at the doorstep of Israel and say, you guys might as well surrender because our gods are better than your gods. We're going to win this victory, and it's all based on whose God is better, essentially. Not really whose army is better, but whose God is better. And so Amaziah walks in and defeats the Edomites, which shows that the God of Israel is better. And then he takes their gods and brings them back and starts worshiping them. It says, therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah. Naturally, I mean, God's angry at the fact that these other gods are essentially getting his glory. He's angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? And the prophet picks up on the iron and he says, What are you doing? Why are you worshipping these gods? You beat these gods. Your God beat these gods, so why are you worshipping them? Verse 16, But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you. Because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. We look at that story and we, and we laugh at it and we, we say how silly, irresponsible can you be to do something like that. And yet, how often are we guilty of going back to the idols that we used to worship? I mean, we're no, we're no better really than Israel a lot of times. There, there's still the temptation for us to, to worship the gods of our land. Maybe not the temptation to bow down to little objects, but to live for our jobs, to live for money, to live for all host of things that this world offers. Scripture gives us some some strong warnings and some strong reminders that living for idols just doesn't make sense. In Psalms 96... Psalm chapter 96, verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. A reminder that that idols aren't real, they're worthless, they don't satisfy, they don't meet our needs, they can't take care of us, they're not sovereign over our life, they don't work things for our good, they're not real. We see this also in Psalms 115, 4 through 9. Just a few pages over. We'll start in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. Verse 5. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This is true of us and our idols that we are tempted to go back to as well. They're not real. They don't satisfy. They can't meet our needs. It's the living, true God that we have a responsibility to worship. And we know that. But the the, the question that I have is, do other people know that? Because the the psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Are we giving an accurate picture to others who our God is? Is our reputation going beyond us that we don't worship the gods of this land anymore like Thessalonica's reputation was? Their reputation was they had turned from the idols of the land. They were now worshiping the one true God. Is that our reputation? Is that the reputation in your family? Your, your, um, Your family that goes beyond just your immediate family? Your extended family, do they know that you do not worship the gods of this land anymore? That you worship the one true and living God? The church at Thessalonica had a genuine break from their false gods. If you turn to 2 Corinthians verse 8, we see a really cool picture of this. I think we would all agree that one of the temptations for us to live for in this life is just to increase in money. If if you have money in our culture, then you can get what you want, what you desire. And so when we talked about money all this summer, we said that when we come to Christ, it necessitates a change in perspective about money. There has to be a change in how we view money, how we see money, how we use money. That scripture seems to portray that you can't be a Christian if you still look at money the same way that you did before you claimed to be a Christian. There's a change in it. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, he doesn't say the church at Thessalonica, but he tells us he's talking about churches who are in Macedonia. Check, that's where Thessalonica is. He's talking about churches who are undergoing severe tests of affliction. Check. Remember he said that you receive the word in much affliction. And in an abundance of joy. He says you receive the word in affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So at best, Thessalonica is at least probably included in this group of churches. And it says they're extremely poor, but they've overflowed in a wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. He says, church in Macedonia, which includes Thessalonica, they are demonstrating that money no longer has a hold on them. Why? Because they've turned from their false gods. They've turned from idols to worship and serve a living, true God. And they're backing it up. They're getting rid of their money. They're, they're, they're faithful to get rid of their money. They're sharing their money with other believers. They've turned from their idols. There was a turning. There's a serving There's a serving. Salvation's purpose. And me and Jake were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Salvation's purpose is doxological. Doxological. If you want to spell that, it's D-O-X-O. D-O-X-O. L-O. 
G-I-C-A-L. D-O-X-O. L-O-G-I-C-A-L. It's doxological, meaning the purpose of salvation is not just simply to get you out of hell. The purpose of salvation is not just to get you to escape the flames of eternal hell. The goal, the goal of salvation is to change you into a person who brings glory and honor to God. Book of Ephesians says you have been saved for good works. It doesn't say you were just saved to get out of hell. It doesn't say you were saved to go to heaven for eternity. You were saved for good works. So the purpose of salvation is for God to rescue men and women back to him that willingly decided to walk away in the Garden of Eden to live for themselves, to worship other gods, to worship themselves, to, to make their own rules. God is rescuing men and women back to him who will now submit to him and bring glory and honor to him. The purpose of salvation is doxological. Paul says you've turned from your idols who aren't real to worship a one true living God. And he really stresses this idea of a living God. He says you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. So he's like, just in case you've forgotten, his son is alive. He died on a cross, but he was brought back from the dead. The God that you serve is a living God. He's alive, unlike the idols that you used to worship. And there's a waiting. He says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's an idea that our, our salvation is still yet to come. We talk about our salvation a lot of times in a past tense. I've been saved from my sin. I've been saved from hell. I've been saved from God's wrath. But God's wrath hasn't come yet. God's wrath comes when Jesus comes back one day. We've said that we want to be a church that's waiting for Jesus to come back. So there's a future aspect of our salvation. Our saving is guaranteed, but our actual saving hasn't fully happened yet. Because when Jesus comes back and brings wrath on the unbelievers, that's when we will ultimately get to see our salvation come to fruition. A turning and a serving and a waiting. Now, you left those three blanks in, in place because I want you to see the connection that Paul's making back to earlier what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1. Remember, he gave us three things that he was praising God about. Remember before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. He's reiterating these three things at the end here. This turning from idols, if you want to fill in that second blank, this turning from idols is their work of faith. There's a change in their faith. They don't put faith in idols anymore. They put faith in the living true God. The serving. He says you now serve a living God. Earlier he said, I'm praising God for your labor of love. And then this waiting, waiting for Jesus to come back. He's already told us that he's praising God for their steadfastness of hope. He's connecting the end of chapter 1 with the beginning of chapter 1. He says, I praise God, your labor, of, your labor of love, your work of faith, your steadfastness of hope. I'm praising God and here's the way I see it. Here's my words for it. But there's a reputation that's gone out from other people. And they recognize that you've turned from idols. That you have a working faith. That you're serving the living true God. That you have a labor of love. That you have a steadfastness of hope. That you're waiting for Jesus to come back. So the conclusion that we see from chapter 1. 
I want to give you a definition of a disciple. We're talking about making disciples here. I think it's important that we recognize what it is that we're trying to make. What is it we're trying to make? A disciple is one who is joyfully striving to bring glory to God. A disciple is one who is joyfully striving to bring glory to God. By faithfully living in a fallen world. A disciple is one who is joyfully striving to bring glory to God. By faithfully living in a fallen world. While anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. That definition is based on what Paul has used to describe these people. Disciples one who is joyfully striving to bring glory to God. By faithfully living in a fallen world. While anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. We want salvation to be doxological here at Sovereign Hope. Our goal is to to produce men and women in this church who bring glory and honor to God in every aspect of their life. Now, the way that we accomplish that, the way that we produce disciples, if you want to put disciple at the top of the page and you've got that definition, how do we produce that? That's where I think the seven things that we talked about at the very beginning come into play. That we produce people who who joyfully strive for the glory of God by faithfully living in a fallen world and wait for Jesus to come back. We produce people that are like that by teaching them to know the gospel, to know a theological understanding of Jesus, to believe in God's sovereignty, to submit to him as king. We equip them to study the word so they can learn it on their own. We, we teach them to love the church so that they find the encouragement and the help that they need. And we teach them a passion for the lost. So the goal is not just to teach them these seven things. The goal is bigger than that. It's to, it's to produce men and women who, who are faithfully living for God's glory in a fallen world. And what that communicates to me is an understanding that I have a place and a purpose here on this earth. I'm to bring glory to God in whatever job I've been put into. That I have a responsibility to, to, to produce glory back to my creator. To, to direct other people's attention in my workplace, in my family, to God. It's an understanding of how the world works. This world is fallen. It's sinful. And so we live here like the children of Israel lived in Canaan, in the promised land. But we don't, we don't adapt to the culture that's here. We live differently. We're separated. We're holy from that. We need to make these type of disciples. And then lastly, a new believer needs me to cultivate salvation in them. Again, I, I, I'm calling out for a, for a desire for you to make disciples out of this church. New believers need you to cultivate salvation in them. Number one, so they'll grow up in their faith. So they'll grow up in their faith. We want to eliminate people coming into this church who are new believers and just letting them flounder and not, and not be successful following Christ. We want them to struggle. We want to eliminate that. We don't want these things for them anymore. 
We want them to grow up in their faith. Number two, so they'll persevere in their faith till the end. A new believer needs you to help them understand their salvation so they'll persevere to the end. We said earlier, there's trials and temptations and difficulties coming that want to quench our desire to follow Christ. And then lastly, number three, so they'll reproduce their faith in others. So they'll reproduce their faith in others. I think Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 gives us a good picture of this. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap. If we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. When we're talking about making disciples, we're talking about sowing into other people. So that reaping can happen. Now, let me help you to see how this happens, because you may not always reap what you sow. Somebody else may reap what you sowed. Think of it this way. Let's say Tiffany says, hey, um, I'm a woman who's married, who has kids, who's been doing this for a while. I can take on responsibility to take a girl in this church who doesn't have a husband yet, who doesn't have kids yet. And I can begin to pour my life into her and teach her and invest in her and sow into her. So that one day, Cortland has a husband and has kids And that husband and that kid begins to reap what Tiffany sowed into Cortland. Tiffany may not reap any benefits from what she sowed into Cortland. But I guarantee you there will be relationships that happen in Cortland's life down the road where people will reap because someone sowed into Cortland. There will be a husband who marries Cortland whose relationship will be better because someone sowed into Cortland. There will be kids whose relationship with Cortland as a mom is better because a mom sowed into Cortland and taught her what it meant to be a godly woman who was responsible for children. There will be younger believers who will reap the benefit because someone sowed into Topi. That someone invested into Topi's life and taught him what it meant to follow Christ. Topi will then be able to turn around and invest in someone else. And someone else will reap the benefits that may not ever know you because you are willing to sow into someone else. Paul says we sow and if we continue to sow, we will reap. Let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So if we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. When we're talking about making disciples, we're talking about sowing into other people. Recognizing that one day someone will reap the benefits because we sowed into them. As Chris gets ready to go to Uganda and establish his ministry over there, he will sow into men who will leave that establishment of his. And people will reap the benefits of him sowing into those men. As more and more people come to Christ through his efforts, through the men that he invested in and he sowed into. My question to you is, are you going to be faithful to sow into somebody? 
so that someone else can reap the benefits down the road. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for this church at Thessalonica. We thank you for the work that you did in them through Paul, through his companions, through the elders that we know you set up in that church. God, we thank you that you grew this church up in their faith so that their example became known to others outside that community. God, we don't even discount the fact that it may have been that that reputation of their faith in Christ led people to get saved outside that community that we could trace all the way back to our salvation. It may have been that people got saved from that that continue to pass the gospel down all the way to us. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you that you did a work in the lives of this church 2,000 years ago. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit and the sanctification that happened here. God, we pray for the same blessings here at this church. God, we want to be a church that grows up in our faith. God, we want people to, to step up in our church, men and women to rise up in our church who, who will prove to be the type of men and women worth following, that will own up to their responsibility to lead younger men and women. And God, we pray that the younger believers in our church will follow that example, that they will imitate men and women in our church so that they too can become examples to younger believers. God, we want the reputation of sovereign hope to extend beyond Sanoi. Not for our glory, but for the sake of your name. God, would it be that people in Noonan and Peachtree City and Fayetteville and Griffin would hear about the work and the change that's happening in the lives of people at Sovereign Hope so that new works can be established in those cities at a much faster rate because of what's happened here. God, I pray that you would burden us and give us a desire to sow into the lives of others. God, we recognize that it takes time, it takes resources, it takes a commitment on our part to step out from our own daily schedule from our own life, from our own responsibilities, and to add something to that. But God, we want to prioritize discipleship here. We want to, we want to cultivate an environment that allows this to happen. And so God, I pray that our people would respond to that. That as they look at their weekly schedule, they would recognize how they can bring younger believers into that schedule and begin to sow and invest in their life. God, we pray that people would be able to reap the benefits of that down the road. That husbands and wives and kids that we don't even know yet would reap the benefits of godly relationships with the people of our church because we were faithful to sow into them. God, help us not to grow weary in well-doing. Help us to be faithful, recognizing that reaping will happen as we are faithful to sow. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.